It's the 11th of August 2017 and this is the room now we can review. My name is Jack Cush. I'm a rheumatologist and executive editor of RoomNow.com and uh, we're going to review the highlights from the reports seen on RoomNow this week. A report from Finland looked at the incidence of rheumatoid arthritis in their population. One of the takeaways from this was that things that um, uh, th that we know about RA and SPA and their prevalence seems to be evolving. Uh, Atul Diodar has been teaching us the last few years that uh, the incidence of SPA is probably greater than that of rheumatoid arthritis and these numbers bear, are, are borne out in this uh, population-based study. Uh, they found that the incidence of rheumatoid arthritis was 41 per 100,000. The incidence of spondyloarthritis uh, or a looser definition of spondyloarthropathy was close, 36 per 100,000, but probably excluded more rigid diagnoses, including reactive arthritis, which they found in 8 per 100,000. Where they're getting reactive arthritis, I don't know. Even at that low number, I'm not seeing that in my practice, but they do see more of it in Scandinavia than we do here in North America. Um, equal to that scene of rheumatoid arthritis is the frequency of undifferentiated inflammatory arthritis with an incidence of 3,900,000. ,000. The latter part of the study actually looked at associations with P. gingivalis, on antibodies of P. gingivalis, and they found those to be correlated with men, uh, ACPA positivity, and no teeth, uh, or loss of teeth. So uh, I guess the takeaway home, uh, takeaway message from this is go to the dentist and uh, realize that uh, undifferentiated arthritis and spondyloarthritis may be as prevalent as rheumatoid arthritis in the population. Another interesting study looked at, at a literature review um, to assess the issue of referral times and specifically looked at the lag time from the development of, of, of symptoms to uh, being referred, to being referred to the rheumatologist, and then ultimately getting on treatment. And the overall no numbers that were seen here, the average from, um, I think, 12 studies and 5,000 plus patients was that the lag time from symptoms to receiving first DMARD was 11.8 months, or roughly a year. When you broke that down, the time from symptoms to seeing the first doctor was three months. And these are average, or I'm sorry, median numbers. From seeing the first doc and being referred to a rheumatologist was another 2.1 months, which I found actually a little surprising. From uh, seeing a rheumatologist and then having a firm diagnosis of inflammatory arthritis or rheumatoid arthritis was 2.9 months. Is that the usual follow-up time or has it taken them that long to make that diagnosis? And then again, the overall um, time was um, uh, you know, almost 12 months. So again, I, I think there's been a trend towards improved referral times, but still there's a lot to uh, be changed here. Uh, an interesting review looked at anti-TIF1 gamma antibodies. This is, an, uh, I think, a 155 KD um, uh, protein that has been associated with dermatomyositis or myositis-associated cancer patients. Uh, and interestingly, in the studies that have been done, this antibody actually has been shown to have a 78% sensitivity and an 89% specificity. This particular study looked at whether or not anti-TIF1 antibodies are seen in other rheumatic patients who have paraneoplastic syndrome or is seen in just plain cancer patients. And the numbers that they found in their um, uh, cohort survey uh, a review was something around 1.3 to 3%. So, those and these antibodies again they retain their sensitivity and specificity and they're seldom seen in again paraneoplastic rheumatic syndromes or patients just with cancer 
I found, in going through my notes this week, I found a quote that we I was supposed to have posted during the ACR meeting, actually during the ULAR meeting, uh, and did not. And it comes from Peter Merkel, wherein he was quoted to have said, uh, prednisone is the best drug we have, prednisone is the worst drug we have. I like that. It got a lot of hits and retweets on social media because it resonates with us. Uh, I say prednisone is the greatest drug and the most hazardous drug that we use. Uh, when I'm explaining it to patients. I think this should be, this line from Merkel is definitely one that you may want to use and repeat. Um, another study comes from uh, 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 um, Joel Block and his group at uh, Rush, where they actually studied their frequency of problems in hepatitis C patients who received TNF inhibitors, and they showed it was relatively infrequent that patients who went on etanercept had any problems if they had a background in hepatitis C. The caveat here is obviously that you will test patients for the LFTs and viral loads and follow them clinically while you give them a TNF inhibitor. Otherwise, the vast majority of patients can safely receive a TNF inhibitor. Tenuzumab, a monoclonal antibody uh, against nerve growth factor, and there are several of them out there that are being developed, is now being fast-tracked by the FDA as a non-opioid pain reliever for use in osteoarthritis and probably other indications. Uh, I think this is sorely needed because I don't know about you, but I have a hard time managing patients with OA of the hands, especially inflammatory OA, and my best therapy right now is very low-dose prednisone, 2.5 milligrams, along with acetaminophen. That were, uh, the usual things we'd like to use in inflammatory OA, DMARDs or biologics, really have no effect at all. Uh, a nice review of scleroderma and lung disease is seen uh, and posted on the site. Um, one takeaway caveat here is that if you have interstitial lung disease associated with progressive systemic sclerosis, the five-year mortality statistics are bleak, 82 to 90%. Um, another tweet that went out that was sort of a teaching bit from myself was, you shouldn't text your patients, you shouldn't email your patients. Text medicine, email medicine is risky, it's incomplete, it's chancy, it may be convenient, but it's also usually not well documented in the usual medical record. Um, if you have a way of communicating with the patient through your EMR, that makes sense because you're documenting that. But again, I wouldn't advise it. I think that um, other than for simple questions and simple refills, do not practice email medicine or text medicine. It's too risky. Uh, an interesting study appeared this week in PLOS 1 about weather and arthritis. As you know, many of the studies about weather um, have been able to make a clear correlation between joint symptomatology and changes in weather or changes in barometric pressure. Um, two investigators got together and used Google and, and the internet to assess the, the types of searches uh, and, the, and link that to temperature changes in certain um, cities. They looked at 50 metropolitan area cities and they, they looked at a number of search terms and they correlated that with the, the barometric pressure and changes in weather and uh, actual temperatures um, over a, a certain period. And what they found was it was change in temperature that most co closely correlated with hip and knee pain um, and musculoskeletal pains in general. Uh, it, uh, what did not correlate was rainfall or barometric pressure. Uh, and it was only good up to a certain point. So I think it was up to 30 degrees centigrade that um, went from minus five or five to 30 degrees centigrade is where you saw um, as those temperatures rose, the, there was a decrease in, um, in hip and knee pain. So 
Uh, I, the exact opposite was seen with um, uh, rain, but there really wasn't a statistically significant change. This, uh, again, these changes were not noted for other pain, uh, non-musculoskeletal pains like uh, abdominal pain, et cetera. So it may be that they, well, at least, at least the authors postulate that it is the change in temperature that allows people to do more or do less, and that may be associated with more or less pain. Um, uh, an interesting report also appeared from a group of Saudi Arabian physicians who studied a cohort of patients who presented to primary care. Uh, and they looked at the um, issues uh, or the, the factors which made for the most productive referrals. Uh, so in this study, they trained their doctors uh, within a few days, with two days of training on how to do uh, an assessment and joint exam. Uh, and they included patients in a study who were uh, over 18 and who had referrals, who had presented with hand pain. Uh, and uh, the factors that they saw that had predictive value um, in, in yielding those patients proven to have inflammatory arthritis by the rheumatologist examination and assessment were the following, loss of appetite, swelling of the MCP2 or 5, swelling of PIP2 or 3, wrist swelling and wrist tenderness, a positive rheumatoid factor or a positive CCP antibody. They set their threshold for um, being, uh, being a good criterion were those that actually had uh, a positive predictive value of greater than 75%, a high likelihood ratio greater than two, a specificity of about 90% or higher. Uh, so these seem to be reasonable, loss of appetite, I'm not sure why that is, it may be a reflection of inflammation um, swelling of MCPs and PIPs and wrists makes sense. Uh, and as does the serology. So you remember the Paul Emery criteria for early referral of inflammatory arthritis included uh, uh, three or more swollen joints, a positive MCP squeeze test like this, uh, an MTP squeeze test would also suffice, and then morning stiffness of greater than 30 minutes. Uh, I think these are somewhat similar. What's interesting is that we don't yet have these criterion being put to the test with a, a, a real performance uh, rating, if you will. Uh, and, and I think that we need more tests like this, more studies like this. We need, more importantly, the ability to take good information and bring it to the primary care sector as hard and fast rules that should govern whether or not patients should be referred. And then lastly, uh, you may have seen at the beginning of the week that Musculoskeletal ultrasound is now included in nearly every U.S. Rheumatology Fellowship training program. While I, I, I remarked that 10 years ago when we would do uh, programs with fellows, it seemed like a little more than a half of the fellows were either being trained in ultrasound or had access to ultrasound. Now the number is about 91%. So the investigators here um, surveyed all of the 113 program directors, had over a 90% response rate found that 94% of programs do have teaching in ultrasound uh, and that 41% of the programs actually have a formal curriculum that, that, that the fellows must go through. So this has become a major part of rheumatology. The question is, will the younger rheumatologists be better at the job than we are? Will they be able to use this tool to some um, uh, better goal or better outcome? It's not necessarily, cl necessarily clear that treating to an ultrasound remission yields better outcomes than usual clinical metrics. But it is interesting to note that these are being used more frequently. In my own practice, we have an ultrasound machine. I seldom use it. I have a younger 
colleague, Rachel Tate, who's fabulous at it, I'm seeing her carting that thing around all day long and she's getting a lot of use out of it. And I'm sure she's doing a great job. The question is, is it time efficient? Is it cost efficient? Is, there, is it reasonable to get reimbursed on? Again, there's a new era of rheumatology ahead and ultrasound's a part of it. That's it for this week. Go to Room Now to see these links and to read more about these articles. Be sure to look at our new therapeutic uh, update, a new feature on Room Now that you'll see in the daily email and also on the website where we'll discuss new issues in therapeutics. This week, uh, we have a video up about uh, the proceedings of the FDA hearing on serucumab. Next week will be proceedings on the FDA hearing regarding tofacitinib and its approval or potential approval for psoriatic arthritis. That's it. Tune in soon. Bye.